end of Acts chapter 11. For those of you that were here last week, you'll remember this. The rest of you, I'll give you a, a little recap. We left off with the church in Antioch being started. What a great church that was. The church in Antioch, which is in Syria, that church began because as the church in Jerusalem was scattered because of the persecution, uh, believers scattered all over the place and preached the gospel wherever they went. But the group that came to Antioch was a little bit different because there were people that were traveling in that direction. Uh, but as they traveled, they only preached the gospel to other Jews. They were all Jewish people, and they were only preaching to other Jews. But then there were people from Cyprus and Cyrene that began to preach the gospel to everybody. What a radical thought, hey? Not just to other Jews, but to everybody, because they realized that this gospel was for everybody. Out of that, the Bible says that God's hand was on them. And there were miracles, there were signs and wonders, there was a wonderful move of God. And God's hand was on them, and the church in Antioch began. And as uh, the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it, the leaders in Jerusalem heard about it, they sent Barnabas. And if you remember, Barnabas was uh, uh, known, his nickname was Son of Encouragement. This was a guy that, you know, took Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul. He took him under his wing and helped him out. He helped John Mark out in that way. He was a guy that knew how to encourage and knew how to encourage well. And Barnabas was sent to the church in Antioch to see if they could be helped helped and, and uh, you know, helped teach them in the way of the, the gospel. And as Barnabas went, he witnessed the grace of God. And it says he got excited about it. He saw the grace of God on that church. And he went and got his, his new friend Saul. He brought him there. Saul, who would later become Paul. And these two began to teach the church. And uh, that church just took off. One thing you notice about the church in Antioch right away First of all, they're a little bit different already. They're made up of a diverse group of people. Uh, but the church in Antioch, we're going to read, you know, a few weeks after this, we'll get to the part where Paul and Barnabas are sent off on the first missionary journey. And they come out of the church in Antioch, which is an important point. Because if you'll remember, the church in Jerusalem was a happening church. I mean, in one sermon, 3,000 people got added to that church. Then it says, not long after that, 5,000 more got added. Church in Jerusalem was a happening place, and it had all the best speakers. It had everybody. It had all the 12 original apostles. My goodness, can you imagine that church? How good that would have been? Well, that's the problem. That was the good thing, and that's also the problem, is that Jesus told them to go into all the world. They went into Jerusalem, and they kind of stayed in Jerusalem. And it wasn't until the persecution began that people started spreading out. Persecution is not good, but there was a good side effect, which was that the church began to spread out. And uh, so, you know, Philip went down to Samaria. Some believers went up this way and that way and that way, and everybody spread out, and the gospel began to go with them. So as this church in Antioch starts... In a few chapters, we'll read, and spoiler alert, but in a few chapters, we're going to read how um, they sent Paul and Barnabas out. Like I said, the church in Jerusalem, it was all about gathering. Let's, let's gather. We got something going on. But the church in Antioch was a church that was founded on the idea of spreading, that we could trust God enough that we don't have to keep everybody that comes. There's a time to send some people out as well. Can you imagine if your two lead teachers in your church were Paul and Barnabas? Would you be real eager to send them away? Would you be real eager if somebody said, I got a word, you're supposed to go, you're supposed to go away. You'd be like, no, that's not a word from God. That's not a word from God. We need these people. These are our guys. But this church trusted God enough that they were able to send these people out, knowing that if God sent these people to them, God could send them from them and take care of them at the same time. You see, the reason we like to gather and hoard is often because we're still trying to be self-sufficient. We're afraid that if I don't keep what I have, I won't have anything. But a believer learns everything I have is his. It came from him, it belongs to him, and he's got lots more. So if he tells me to give, I'll give. 
If he tells me to send somebody out, we send them out, we'll know that God will take care of us. This is going to be real important in what we're about to read. Go ahead in Acts chapter 11. And uh, right towards the end, verse 27, it says, At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. I know I've said this before. You're probably tired of me saying it. But nobody at this church has yet taken me up on the suggestion that that's a great name for a new baby. We had babies born. And nobody named their kid Agabus, huh? No, 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 we had ours all picked out. Right, yeah. I said, we have a girl. Agabus is great. Kick and play football, you call him bus, you know, the bus, you know. Texas A&M's got a great football program. At Texas A&M, you go to Texas A&M, they call you Aggies anyway, so Aggie bus works, you know. So many levels. Anyways, Agabus stood up. This better not be the one thing you remember from the sermon tonight. <laughs> what was he talking about? I don't know, something about a football player. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. Now, you might, your Bible might say in the bracket, over the known world, right? To a citizen of the Roman Empire, or even a resident of the Roman Empire, to them, the whole world is not near as the big as the whole world is to us right now, isn't it? The whole world is, as far as they know, mostly the Roman Empire, maybe some fringe. Uh, it's not that big, but the Spirit is indicating to Agabus, the world you know, not just this place, but this whole area is going to be affected by famine. History shows us that it did happen in the time that it said it was going to happen. It didn't happen all at the same time, but it happened in waves, and, and it, hit, it hit that whole area. There was a Judean famine. There was a famine in Egypt. There was all these things that happened, and, and, and just as the Spirit had indicated. Now, the Spirit indicated by Agabus that there would certainly, see that word certainly? That's hard to use when you're a prophet. This was a true prophet of God that could stand up and say, I've got no doubt in my mind this is going to happen. There would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this, this is Luke, the historian, writing after the fact. He says, and this took place. That's important, isn't it? He's saying it just wasn't a prophecy. It happened. This took place in the reign of Claudius. So when he's writing this, it's not yet the reign of Claudius. But he says that famine that he was talking about actually happened. He says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Let's go back, and I know we've talked about this before. If you go to this church, you've heard me talk about it. But this is where we find ourselves. So if we repeat something, don't be afraid. It'll just go one, one inch deeper in your heart, one inch deeper in your mind, maybe even deeper than that. But look at this. When Agabus stood up, he said there would certainly be a famine where? Whole world, right? If a guy stood here and he prophesied there's going to be a famine over the world that you know, in, your whole, in the whole world there's going to be a famine, wouldn't you think that include you? Right? We'd all say, uh-oh. What's your first instinct if somebody says there's going to be a famine? Horde. Yeah, exactly. Horde. You know, you... Don't be ashamed to answer a question. If I ask a question, that's fine. <laughs> you know, to, to, to hoard, to gather, right? I, I was working retail when, when the word recession started to get thrown around. You know, recession didn't hit Alberta like it hit most other places. We, we might have felt tingles here and there, but we did not get hit the way, you know, people down in, in Michigan got hit. We didn't get hit the way people in, you know, many other parts of the world got hit. Many other parts of North America got hit. So, but that word, as soon as that word recession got thrown out there, people just started, you know, hoarding and stopped shopping and, and they started panicking and started making sure they had everything. Because that's a natural human instinct. It's a natural instinct in nature. When you think you're going to be without, you hoard, you, you store up. When Agabus said this, their first reaction knowing that they're going to have famine just like the people in Judea are going to have a famine. 
They could have easily said, well, the people in Judea need to trust God to take care of them, and we're going to trust God to take care of us. But the church in Antioch was not a church that felt that they needed to hoard. The church in Antioch was built on the premise that God will supply. So we are a church of supply. One of, I said this a few weeks ago, but one of the signs of Christian maturity, in my mind, there are many signs of maturity, greatest being love. But one of the signs of Christian maturity is that you go from being a pure consumer who says, God will provide for me. You know, that is a, a basic, good, elementary truth, isn't it? That's something that we should teach our children. God will provide for you. If you have a need, God can provide that need, right? That is foundational. That is so important to what we believe. But you got to move, building on that foundation, not throwing that foundation away, but building on top of that foundation, you've got to move from that place to also believing that God may use you to be that supply. One preacher that I can think of right now, and it affected me, I heard this sermon when I was a little kid. He talked about, you know, how whenever there was a glass that was empty, God had a pitcher to fill it up. And he said, but I want to be the man with the pitcher in my hand that God uses to fill somebody else's glass up. That is one of the things. As you grow in Christ, you start by starting with the truth that God will take care of you and he will provide for you. But as you grow, you begin to believe and you begin to know and understand that God also wants to use you to be that provision for someone else. He will provide for you and he'll use you to provide for someone else. See, if you believe that God will provide for you, you've got no problem providing for someone else because it's not taking anything from you. God's the one that gave it to you in the first place. Now, it may cost you something. There may be times where you have to step out in faith and you say, I don't, I don't have it. I don't see it. And you step out and trust God that if he's able, he's the one that gave it to you to start with. He gave it to you to start with. And you trust God and you give it away. God can give you something right back. This is a foundational truth, isn't it? This is what he says. As they heard the word that there'd be a famine, human instinct says, store up, don't spend, don't give. But their spiritual instinct says, it's time to give. It's time to give. How, I mean, how do we get through a famine? By trusting God. How do we demonstrate our trust in God more than anything? We give. The Bible talks about Isaac as he sowed in famine. The dumbest time to sow. He planted seed in, a, in, a, in an area that was not bearing fruit for anybody else, but he planted seed knowing God gives the growth. If God's hand is on it, it'll grow even in a time of famine. I remember going by and uh, when we had a drought in this area, and the Davidsons were experiencing, you know, it even seemed that when we'd get rain in Lloydminster, they didn't get rain out in Maidstone area. They didn't get rain in that area. And I remember they were coming to church and they were giving and they were, they were trusting God. And we prayed, you know, the Bible says that he gives rain in its season and, and that you have that. That's a promise from God. And so we prayed over them and we said, you know, God is able to take care of your needs. As you're trusting God, he's able to take care of these things. I remember driving down the road and seeing a line of green and a line of brown right next to it. And I said to one of the Davidson girls as we were driving, I said, and this was years and years ago. I remember I said, okay, what's the difference? What is it a different crop? She said, no, it's the same crop. That's our land. That's our neighbor's land. Same weather, but God had caused growth in their land where it shouldn't have been any growth. Did God hate their neighbor? No. <laughs> but these people were trusting God. God did the impossible. So here's the deal. They could have easily said, now they had to, I've said this before, but they got a, a word from the Lord that there was going to be a famine, right? Do you know, whenever the Lord speaks to you, whether it's through a prophet or whether it's to your own spirit, you know, that's not the end of the story. That's not, that's not the only thing you need to hear. Jesus said this, Jesus says, when I hear what I hear from the Father, I judge and you know that my judgment is true because I don't seek my own will. I don't seek my own initiative. I seek the Father's will. So what he's saying is God speaks to me. And when he speaks to me, I got to figure out what that means and what I'm supposed to do with it. Right? 
Have you ever heard something from God where you say, that could mean a few things? Uh, all right, can you give me more? Do you ever have somebody prophesy over you and you want to follow them around and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> what well, can I tell you? Most of the time, they don't know what that means. They would have said if they knew. They said what the Lord told them to say. That's, that's, that's it. So you got to seek the Lord as to what do I do with this? What do I, how, where do I take this from here? Jesus said, what I hear from the Father, I don't just hear it, I have to judge it. And when you judge a word from the Lord, you, just, you say, okay, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do with it? You parse it. And he says, you know my judgment is true because I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of the one who sent me. That's the difference, isn't it? Somebody could just say to you, the Lord is with you. What you put your hand to, he says, go ahead and put your hand to it. It'll do what, you know, and he could, he could prophesy to you and you could hear it. And if you're seeking your own will, you could interpret that thing totally wrong. Go way off course. But if you, if you say, I'm not seeking my own will. God, what do you want me to do with that? You'll find the will of God and his hand will be on it. So when they hear, there's going to be a famine. Now, if they had just gone and said, well, what that means? What are we supposed to do? If they had just said, let's look in our Bibles, they could have gone and saw where God told Joseph there was going to be a famine in Egypt. And God told Joseph, store up. But that's not what he was telling them for this time. So even saying, where do we, I mean, thank God for Scripture. Scripture is, is, uh, is our standard. Uh, man, if ever, everything you hear from God's got to line up with the Scripture. The Scripture is the highest authority. But even then, they couldn't just go by and, and Bible roulette and pick a story and say this is applies. They had to know, what are we supposed to do about it? Do you ever get that where God speaks and you go, that's very nice, but what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do about it? There's going to be a famine. Okay. Tell me what I'm supposed to do about that. Their instinct and the moving of the spirit was that they would give. There's going to be a famine. This goes against everything you ever learn in business school. This goes against everything anybody ever taught you in your life skills is when the money's about to run out, you stop spending, you stop giving. But what the Lord says is, if you'll trust me with it, I'll take care of you. And as they gave, they gave with joy. Each one of them, everybody gave something. It says, as each of them had means. So the ones that had more gave more. Ones that had left gave what they could, but everybody gave something. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would take that your instinct, when everyone else says recession, when everyone else says famine, your instinct is to say, I'm going to give more than I gave before. That's somebody that trusts God. That's somebody that knows the law of seed, time, and harvest. That's somebody that knows if I can give... Give, and it will be given unto me. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men put it into my lap. That's somebody who's not so focused on themselves, but they know if I seek the kingdom and his righteousness, everything I need will be added to me. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 8. I want to read something there. You, many of you know this very well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Just real quick, there is a country right now called Macedonia. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, Macedonia in Paul's time was a Roman province that made up the northern part of Greece. So Philippi... Thessalonica, Berea, these are major church cities that were in Macedonia. Anybody remember some of these cities? Your book of Philippians in your Bible comes from one of those churches. Your book of Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians came from one of those churches. When Paul said the Bereans were more noble than everyone else because they went and checked their Bibles to see if what, the, what he was preaching was true, they're in that region as well. The church in Philippi, one of the ch first churches in Macedonia, started when Paul and Silas got tossed into prison. That's a good way to start a church, isn't it? Get a couple of jailbirds to start a church. They get tossed into prison, not for stealing a car or anything like that. They get tossed in prison because a slave girl got delivered from an evil spirit that allowed her to tell the future. And her masters didn't like that. 
So they get tossed into prison. When they get into the prison, they begin to praise God. Once again, that goes against your instinct, doesn't it? Your instinct is to begin to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Your instinct is to mourn. Their instinct when they get into prison is to praise God, get happy, sing happy songs. Remember that next time you say, I know I should praise the Lord, but I just don't feel like it right now. How do you think you'd feel? It says they were shackled hand and foot. Do you think you'd feel like praising the Lord when you're shackled in a dirty Philippian prison? So when we say, I don't feel like it because I just had a Big Mac, <laughs> doesn't really stand up, does it? <laughs> oh, I didn't really feel like it. I just do it when I feel like it. No, you, do, you praise the Lord because he deserves praise. And sometimes you need to praise the Lord because you don't feel like it. That's the whole point. Is that if you praise the Lord, things turn around. You turn around. So anyways, Paul and Silas begin to praise the Lord in a Philippian prison. And Philippi being one of the major cities of Macedonia. And as they're praising the Lord, an earthquake comes. And it shakes the whole prison. And their chains fall off. And doors open. Not just them, but the whole prison. Paul and Silas, once again, your instinct when your chains fall up and the doors open is to do what? Book it out of there, right? What kind of idiot stays there? The jailer goes and, you know, he's, he's under the sort of law where your prisoners escape. It's your life now. You're going to die because you let them go. So he's walking around going, oh, oh, this is the end. It's not just like you get fired and have to go, you know, work at Burger King. Now you, got, you get fired and get killed, you know. And so he's not too happy about this. And Paul says, don't worry. We're all still here. The jailer comes. And I don't know why you're still here. But the jailer takes him to his house. And his family takes care of Paul and Silas's wounds because they were whipped. And Paul preaches the gospel to this. And out of that family, the church in Philippi starts. That's the beginning of the church. So this church, these churches have come a long way since then. And he says, I want you to know about the grace of God that was given to these churches. Now, we talk about grace a lot. And grace, as you might understand it when you hear it, you might think of the fact that the grace of God was given to you so that's how you were saved that though you were a sinner the grace of God came and made you righteous though you were a sinner the grace of God was extended towards you and you were introduced in the family of God but the grace of God in this case is talking about the empowering of God to do what you couldn't do before which was to give what they couldn't give he says I want you to know about the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, I want you to know what the word affliction is. The word affliction in the New Testament never, no, never, never refers to something that's just happening to somebody that you could say, oh, God's doing this. It is always persecution from people. It's evil done to them. In fact, the, the Greek word just means evil that's done to you. And any, anytime you look at the examples where it says this is affliction and it tells you what it is, it's always persecution. They're always being persecuted for the gospel's sake. So the churches in Macedonia were experiencing it. They didn't start out poor. What had happened to them was they all lost their jobs. They all got shunned because they decided to follow Jesus. The same thing happened in Judea. We read in Hebrews that... that you had jobs before. You don't have jobs now. People disowned you. The church in Smyrna, for instance, in, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus talks to this church and he says they were going through some hard stuff. Let me tell you a little bit of the reason why. The churches in Macedonia would have practiced Roman slash Greek religion. Now, Roman religion was just Greek religion with names changed. So they played nice together. Because the Romans didn't really ever, they rarely began something themselves. They just adopted what other people were doing. As they conquered more territories, they adopted things everybody else was doing. So the, in the Greek and Roman religion, there were many different gods. And if you were going to work in a trade, so if you are a builder, you would belong to a builder's guild. That's a union of all the builders in town. And if you're going to get a job, you got to belong to the guild, right? That's not what happens here, but that's what happened there. If you wanted a job, you had to belong to this guild. Every guild had a patron god or goddess. 
If you wanted to stay a part of that guild, you had to worship that god or goddess. You had to offer sacrifices. You had to fit in. If you didn't, you'd be shunned, kicked out of the guild, and you don't get jobs. So can you imagine following Jesus when you're faced right off with the option, if you follow Jesus, you may lose your job. You may lose your livelihood. You may lose your friends. You may lose your family. Does that sound easy? No, that's not an easy thing to hear. But they knew Jesus is worth much more. Jesus is worth much more than anything else. So they followed Jesus. But they were going through some stuff. Now, look at this. He says, in a great ordeal of affliction, these people gave. When they were being persecuted, when their money was tight, Instead of hoarding it, they gave it away. And the Apostle Paul says this was the grace of God given to them. What is grace? Grace is, what is God's favor, God's ability given to you. What God can do through you that you could never do on your own. They could never give this on their own. They didn't have it. It says in that great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed. And the wealth of their liberality. They started out as a group of people that didn't have much, but they gave like people who had a lot. And he didn't say that was their giving. He says it was the grace of God working through them. In order for the grace of God to work through you, you have to decide right away, it's not going to be of me, it's going to be him doing it through me. When you trust that God can supply other people's needs through you. It doesn't matter what you think, look like on the outside. God can use you to do amazing things. It says, for I testify. You know, I saw it with my own eyes. I testify that according to their ability, listen to this, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Nobody had to force them. Nobody even pressured them. It says, to the best of their ability, to their ability, and beyond their ability. I know this is a point I've made several times, but for the sake of those who haven't heard it, think about that. How do you give beyond your ability? Without a credit card, without checks that could bounce, how do you give beyond your ability to give? How's that possible? It's possible when you let God do it. It's possible when you're, you're a channel that God can use. They gave not just their ability, they gave beyond their ability. The only way you're ever going to do something beyond your own ability is to let God do it through you. Now, we trust that. Some certain, certain things, we know that, right? If, if I told you right now, you know, most of the people in this room, right now, if I said, can God use you to lay hands on the sick and see them recover? You'd all say, yeah, absolutely. So if somebody had walked in the door and they were sick, you know you could pray for that person, they'd be healed, Right? So when you pray for them, are you secretly massaging things and like sneaking pills in their mouth while you're praying for them? No. Because you know I have no ability to heal this person. So I am trusting fully in you. You've got to do this. Right? Nobody, nobody comes to the front and says, you know what? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm dying. I've got this disease. And you go, okay, well, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can do, and then you help me out. Because you know there's nothing you can do. So you just fully rely on him. Why is it that when it comes to giving, often we'll say, what do I have? Oh, I'll see what I have. I'll figure out what I can do. I'll figure out what we can budget. Hang on, what are you doing? You're trying to do it on your own, and then maybe God can supplement it a little bit. Instead of just saying, God, if you want to use me, Use me. All right, I'll give whatever you tell me to give. You'll, you'll provide. You'll make it happen. <laughs> My grandma, growing up in, in a little Methodist church, she'd always give the same amount every Sunday, same amount every Sunday. She was at a conference. Uh, she got really turned on to Jesus because of her daughter getting saved. Really turned on to Jesus from there. And she... Uh, big-name preacher had visited their town, and she's sitting in the audience. Correct me if I get anything that's wrong. She's sitting in the audience, and uh, the Lord tells her, gives her an amount that she can't, you know, she's never given that much before. 
She gave the same amount every Sunday. All of a sudden, the Lord gives her an amount that's quite a bit bigger. Says, I want you to give this. Well, she's never had God speak to her and say, I want you to give this. She wrote that on the envelope, didn't she? Yeah, she always gave her tithe, but when she visited church. Right. This is the visiting amount, right? It's always this, $1. So the Lord gave, told her to give 20 right? 20 times what you normally give. Might not seem like a big deal now, but in the 70s. And to an old lady, that's a lot. So how'd she get that 20 bucks? Yeah. So how did she get it? She had it. She had it. And the Lord supplied it. She had it. But that was all she had for the rest of the month. This isn't going to sound good on the podcast. No, it's not your fault. I'm asking you. (laughs) That's all she had to live on, much like the widow who gave, and Jesus watched her give the last of what she had. She gave, and the Lord supplied. I don't know how many. I I, I can't remember. Was this you and Dad where the Lord gave you an amount and you... Yeah, you just wrote it down, and yeah. by the time you got to the front, somebody had put that amount in your hand? No. That's a different person. I'm not going to tell any more stories from this. <laughs> I can tell you I've heard a lot of stories. They're all blending together in my mind. <laughs> this is why you prepare for a sermon. <laughs> there was a, a preacher one time. My dad was in the audience. Preachers, a big group of people. He started telling a story that he was sure was from the Bible. He says, I don't know where that is in the Bible. He says, you know who always knows? Brother David, where is that in the Bible? My dad says, sort of sheepishly, it's not in the Bible. And he goes, it's not. Well, it ought to be. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was God told us to write the envelope for amount. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So, podcast listeners, there's going to be a blank space. It was a good story. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Back to the Bible. Can't mess that up. All right. (laughs) It says, for I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. The sentence is not done yet. Begging us with much urging. I read from the New American Standard. The New American Standard sometimes is notoriously dry. Begging us with much urging. Think about that. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You know what this implies to me? This implies that the Apostle Paul and his friends were saying, you guys don't need to give. Come on, no, no, you you got needs. You're okay. And the Macedonian church said, let us give. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. Let us give. Please let us give. Begging with much urging. Let us give. Paul had to recognize the grace of God and say, okay, if it's God doing it, we're going to let you give. Because later he wrote to the Philippian church. And this might not be about writing about the same story, but when he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, I'm glad you started giving. He says, not that I was seeking the gift, but I seek the, the profit that increases to your account. So he understood. He said, I'm not, I'm not after your money. But because you gave, God's doing something in your life, and I'm glad about that. He says, they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, Skip to the ninth chapter here, and I want to read this. He says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast to you about the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you might be prepared." 
Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. In other words, he's saying, you guys are a church that's doing well. And I take these people who had nothing and trusted God, and God told them to give, and they gave beyond what you'd ever expect. He said, when we come and you give, I want you to know I'm bringing Macedonians with me. (laughs) He said, you don't want to be embarrassed in front of them. These people trust God. Then he goes on, he says this in verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able... Hey, that's big, isn't it? God is able. Those key words change everything. You know, growing up, I grew up with parents that trusted God and believed God. I mean, mom and dad, when they first came to Canada, uh, they went to, were ministering on the reserve, and the people that were giving to them from, from where their hometown, where they came from, stopped, you know, stopped giving. Like, within the first month, the church split. And they had to trust God when it didn't seem like it was there. And they, you know, doing your taxes, and the accountant says, how in the world are you giving this? You guys barely make this. And watch how God supplied. So I was always really turned off, really turned off growing up by a preacher who put guilt trips on people to give. Oh, if you don't give. You know, the, the classic, if you don't give, we're going down the drain. Oh, we can't keep the lights on. How are we going to broadcast? We were always like... Come on. You're just manipulating people. Show some videos, make them cry, make them give some money. Trust God. If God gave you that, that idea, if God gave you that ministry, he'll take care of it. Trust God. So this is a key phrase. Paul doesn't go to them and goes, I know you're able. He doesn't say, I know you guys have it. He says, God is able. It's not about whether or not you're able. It's never been about that. You see, before this, in chapter 8, he says, as you abound, I'll just read that. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. He says, in the same way that you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in earnestness, in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. So he's saying, guys, when you get up and prophesy, you're not speaking from yourself. When you're loving the world, you're not loving from your own self. When you're doing all these things, it's coming from God. You're trusting God in the same way. Trust that God is able to do this through you. We've got to change from how we used to think, where we used to think, you know what, I'll see what I have left over and I'll give that away. Because that's whether or not you're able. God's not asking you, are you able to give? He's telling you, I'm able. God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What's he saying? God's able to take care of your needs so that you can take care of somebody else's needs. Here's the thing. When we read that verse outside of its context, you might assume that God will first take care of all your stuff and then you say, I got plenty. I might as well give some away. But he just finished telling you that there was a group of people that didn't seem to have it, and they still gave, and God met their needs. Sometimes we're waiting. You might might say to God, I know this sounds silly to you, but I've had people come up to me and say, I'm believing that I win the lottery. Because when I do, it's going to do so much for the kingdom. When I win the lottery. You know, they didn't have a southern accent. I don't know why I'm doing that. (laughs) That's not fair. It was the Alberta lottery they were going for. (laughs) I'm just doing it this way so you don't suspect who I'm talking about. No, I'm just kidding. 
You don't know him anyways. I'm praying that God would help me win the lottery so that when I win the lottery, I can bless so many people. Are you giving right now? No, I want to win the lottery. You're not giving right now. What makes you think you're going to give then? Give what you have. In fact, trust God that you can give what you don't have. That he'll put something in your hand to give. If he told you to give it, he'll, he'll put it in your hand. Go ahead and say yes to him. Say yes and say, God, you realize I'm saying yes, but you're going to have to provide that. He says, no problem. I do that. You say yes to God. Let him worry about how it happens. But I want you to see, you know, he says, I want to make, I want to make you abound in every area so that you've got enough to give into every good work. And we say, well, as soon as that happens, I'll start giving in every good work. But with the Macedonians, it didn't seem to be there. And they started giving. And God took care of them. I've said this before, but you realize when that widow woman that Jesus was watching with his disciples, that lady who had been widowed, and in that culture, if you were widowed, it's not like today, there's government assistance, there's savings, you could still be widowed and get a decent job. But in that day and age, your husband died. There weren't a lot of jobs for you. A lot of the jobs were heavy labor jobs. A lot of the jobs, you know, your father to son to son to son would pass on. Your husband dies. You got kids to take care of. You can't just take a job. So a lot of times that's why the early church began to take care of the widows so passionately because the widows needed taken care of. In fact, all through the scriptures, God says how he fights for the orphans and the widows. He cares about them. The people that everybody else had kind of set aside, he cared. He took care of them. But you know, when that little woman who's widowed comes up and puts, and Jesus knows that she's giving everything she's got. She's giving the last she has to live on. And there's not a government check coming. This is it. There's not a welfare check. This is it. She puts it in the offering. If Jesus were being led by the flesh, he would have ran to that lady and said, lady, take your money. It's okay, you take your money, it's okay. But Jesus knew what everybody else didn't know. And it says Jesus bragged about her to his disciples. He said, you see that lady? She gave more than all these rich people. Because these rich people just gave out of their leftovers. But this woman gave all that she had to live. Jesus didn't stop her, he rejoiced. What kind of jerk would rejoice if God wasn't going to provide for that woman? Jesus knew God was going to provide for her because she trusted God. That's huge. That's huge. Now, here's the thing. Those rich people that Jesus was talking about, could they have given with the same faith as that little woman? Yes, they could have. Absolutely. Why not? But the problem was they had learned to give from themselves. So you give what you have left over after you've done everything else you need to do. But the woman didn't have those kind of luxuries. So she just gave all she had. Those rich guys, they could have given with the same amount of faith. They could have said, all right, you know what? This, my accountant's going to smack me in the head. But I'm going to give beyond what I should normally give. I'm going to give, before I do anything else, I'm going to give God first thing. They could have done that. And Jesus would have rejoiced with them. But instead, they relied on themselves. How much do I make? What do I have? How much do I need to pay the bills? How much do I need to do this? Then whatever I have left over, that's my giving. Instead, this lady says, giving comes first and God can take care of the rest. I recognize I am basically telling you to be financially irresponsible. And I'm sorry. I'm just telling you to trust God. But you know, we believe, he goes on to say that nobody should ever give because they were forced to give. You know what? Nobody judges you for what you ever give. Nobody here ever condemn you for what you give or you don't give. It's between you and God. But I want to urge you. What you trust to God, what you entrust God with, he's able to keep. 
The areas of your life that you let God into, he's able to take care of, and his hand is on it, and he blesses it how he wants to bless it. And his ideas for you are better than your ideas for you. And he loves you, and he wants to take care of you. Isn't it amazing to you that when a widow was starving in the Old Testament, and her son was starving, and they were about to eat their last meal and die, that God sends a rescue mission to them because God loves widows and orphans? And what does the rescue mission look like? A bunch of people with wagons full of food? No, a prophet that asks for the last food they've got. <laughs> Either God's got terrible timing or he's got the best timing in the world. Boy, would this make headlines all over the world. Evil, greedy, money-loving preacher steals the last meal from a dying widow and orphan. Right? He says, she says, I mean, I don't know. Can you imagine being used by God in this way where you're like, God, don't make me say that. God, don't make me say that. Please don't make me ask that lady for her last meal. I, I can't do that. You know I'm going to provide for them, right? I know, still really awkward. Please don't make me do this. Says, you got any food? I have a little bit of flour left and some oil. I am going to make one last little cake, eat it, and she says it. She actually uses these words. And then we're going to die. And let me just put it straight to you. I've got no hope. There's no, maybe things will turn out. The sun will come out tomorrow. No, we're going to die. This is our last meal. What do you say there? Oh, honey, I'm sorry. Let's go find. He says, let me have some of it first. <laughs> really? Yeah, let me have some of that cake. Cake sounds good right now. No, no, <laughs> misunderstood me. I got one little bit left, and me and my son are going to eat it before we die. Not, not suicide, starvation. Can I have some of that first? Gosh. She says, yes, okay. And then the Lord tells her through the prophet, get all the jugs, of oil, jugs you can get, and the Lord's going to fill them. Borrow all the jugs from your neighbors that you can find, all the vessels you can find. And the Lord filled all of those with oil that she was able to sell. Some of it she kept for herself. Most of it, I'm assuming, she sold, and God took care of that. We find out later, God took care of that widow and her son for years and years to come. So God's rescue mission sometimes doesn't look like our rescue mission. God sent an offering their way, not an offering like we think of, an, an offering to receive. But that's God taking care of somebody. Why do we think it's different for us? Sometimes we think it's different because we actually have something. So we give what we have and thank God for that. That's a blessing. I'm not just talking about giving in church. I'm talking about a lifestyle of giving. Do you see what he said? That you might be able to give into every good work? I read that and I get so stretched by that. I do, because as of right now, if you say give into every good work, I, I can't handle that. I think about that, that's just way too big. Every good work is a lot of good works. But he says, I can do that. God is able to make this grace abound to you. God is able to do this. God is able to move you from being the person who's got the glass in their hand saying, Lord, you need to provide. I'm about to run out of water to moving you to be the person who's got, who's got the glass but's got the pitcher that's pouring out for somebody else. Can we be those kind of people? <coughs> I think about it. What can God do? What can God do through you? This church in Antioch, was faced with the reality that they and their families and all their friends, their whole church was about to experience famine. And their instinct is, well, let's take up some money and give it away to Judea. Let's take up some money and take care of the people that can't take care of themselves. That's their instinct. That is the instinct of somebody that knows that God's taking care of you. That's your instinct. When you know that God is your provider, you say, I can give. He's the one that gives it to start with. So I'll let God into the equation. If I can give something away, 
then I know that's an area of my life that I've let Jesus be Lord over. Once heard somebody say it, and this is just about as simple as it gets. He said, live life with an open hand. Whatever the Lord puts in your hand, don't resist it. And yet when the Lord tells you to give it, don't resist it. Never let God put something in your hand that you close your fist over and say, it's mine. I need this, I need this, it's mine. But always live in a life where he can give you anything he needs to give you. But he can also tell you to give anything. And you really trust God. You can, you can give stuff away left, right, and center. And give your vehicle away and know that God will give you another vehicle. Now, I'm not telling you to just give your vehicle away tonight. I'm telling you to just obey God. You may go your whole life and God never tells you to give away your vehicle. But if he does, he can take care of you. The Lord can take care of you. And he will. Thank God. Thank God that he is able. God is able. It's not about you being able. It's about God being able. Amen. This church in Antioch understood that we could live by the flesh and just hoard everything. Or we can trust God and give it away. Whether it was money, people, time. We trust God will be a church that gives out rather than a church that gathers in. The church always gathers in, but also spreads out. The church started with that concept, and it ended with that concept. And I believe that's got to be the way we got to live today. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Stand up with me. Lord, we thank you that you are good and your mercy endures forever. God, expand us, enlarge us, so that we would be able to have the faith that these people had that we'd believe what you say, not just what we think is logical. Lord, that we would trust you with not just spiritual things as we think are spiritual, but we would trust you in everything. We would trust you with not just our church time, but all the time. We would trust you with our kids. We'd trust you with our families. We'd trust you with our job. We'd trust you with our money. That in everything you would be glorified. In everything, you would use us to not just be the ones who have the glass, but the ones that have the pitcher. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided. You have been faithful over and over again. Would you open our eyes to those in need? Would you open our eyes to those that we can give towards? Would you open our eyes to believe that we can give more than we've ever given before? Because you've created us to be a giving people. In Jesus' name, we know that you are able. You're able. That forever will be our proclamation. That will be forever our belief. Not that we are able, but that you are able. Use us however you want to use us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We love you very much. Encourage you to put the word into practice. Open up your heart and say, God, who can I give to this week? What can I give to? Let's see what the Lord does. Because he can do amazing things if you'll trust him. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.